Hello everyone and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast. I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed. Journalists, independent investigators, people like that disappeared. It frightened her to the bone. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous crimes. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad at the government. The study that he commissioned that described a fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck? Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the Moore tragedy. Robert Moore, 13, and Benjamin Moore, 10, died of gunshot wounds to their heads in Ogma, Wisconsin on August 30th of 1993. On August August 30th, 1993, near the small town of Ogama in northern Wisconsin, a tragic drama unfolds. Two young boys, Robert and Benjamin Moore, leave their shoes and books behind for one last joyride before the end of their summer vacation, an escape they would never return from. The mystery of what could have driven these boys to kill themselves is still unsolved. Or is it possible that they were murdered? Roberta Moore is haunted by the memory of that fateful day. The facts of the case don't add up. After eight years, she still has no clear answers as to why her sons would commit such an unthinkable act. Did foul play lead to murder? Her search for the facts reveal many disturbing clues as she recalls the events of what happened. Their father found their bodies on a recreational trail about one mile from the Moore house. Roberta Moore left home at about 7am that morning to take care of her elderly father. She remembers seeing the boys near the bathroom door as she got ready to leave the house. About 45 minutes after she left, her then-husband John Moore, they have since divorced, phoned her at her dad's house and told her the boys were missing. Roberta then rushed home to find John standing in the back of the house, staring into space. It wasn't until she searched the house for the boys that John told her that their old car, which they jokingly referred to as Ben's car, was missing also. Right away, Roberta thought of tire tracks because it was a rainy day. Sure enough, tracks were there, leading down Ogama Prentice Road to Spring Road and into a recreational trail. She returned to the house and got John, and he drove down to the trail. At John's insistence, she stayed in the truck while he walked into the woods. She waited about 15 minutes and then walked down the trail to a point where she could see the old car. But she didn't see John or the boys and wondered where everyone was. She returned to the truck and started to drive down the trail. She was met by John coming out. He was crying. She asked him, quote, where are the boys? He said, quote, don't come any closer. They've killed themselves and the gun is there, end quote. Shock and grief have distorted her memories of that morning. When she looks back, she wasn't able to recall the order of events. She knew that she heard a gunshot, one single gunshot. She was out by the trail when she heard it, but she couldn't say for sure when she'd heard it, whether it was on her trip to the trail on her own, following the tire tracks, or whether it was on the second trip while she was waiting in the truck for John. When I noticed the boys were missing, I could see that John was standing in the background in the field, just standing there, looking around. And I wondered how come he was just standing there because obviously the boys weren't there. 
And then he came up to me and said, well, the car is gone. And then when he said the car was gone, then I knew it was a rainy day, so I just figured, well, of course, there'd be tracks. And sure enough, there were tracks. The tracks led out on the road and down to the trail. I followed the tracks down to the trail and then came back and got him. And he took Lisa and I in his truck and drove down to the beginning of the trail. He left Lisa and I at the beginning of the trail and he walked in himself. Well, I didn't know whether to go around to the other um, entrance, which was located down in the town of Ogama, or, or what to do. He left the keys in the truck. So I just waited for a while, and then I wondered what was going on. So I thought I should go take a look. So I walked maybe one or two telephone pole lengths in there, and I didn't see anything. And then I heard a shot. And then I got worried, so I hurried back to the truck and I drove in, and as I was driving in, I could see him coming out when I had drove in away. Now the place where they was located, were located was about three quarters of a mile from the road. And he was coming out and he, he had a really strange expression on his face. He must have been in shock. And Lisa noticed later on that he was crying, but he had no tears. And so I asked him, well, what happened and where's the boys? And he said that they killed themselves and that the gun was there. And well, I just kind of went into shock, you might say. Or, um, I had a really hard time dealing with it for a long time. And as soon as they got home, Roberta called 911. The time of that call is on record as 8.25am. It's also on record that only 12 minutes later, John called Heidel's funeral home and arranged to have their sons cremated. She was very upset when she found out, but he told her it was the cheapest way to bury them, which is a strange statement to say the very least. Then we went back to the house and I called up the 911 and I couldn't remember the number to call. So it took a while till I could call, and I told the um, 911 people that, that he had discovered the bodies of the boys and that they were dead. And at that time, it was 8.25. And then I went upstairs into their room. Because I thought it was suicide, I thought I'd look and find, see if there was, they left any kind of a note or something. And that's when I found that picture of that safe among some other things that Robert had drawn up in his room. And I went through all his stuff and looked carefully and we never found anything other than that there. I wondered what it was for a long time, but it was a picture of a big tall building and on this building there was a safe. And the safe fell off this building and crushed somebody. And underneath the safe there's a body that's crushed and you can see that he made blood and then from the body there's a happy spirit rising and on the top of the picture it says ha 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 so Robert says if you're already dead then you're safe and the police came and well um, I should have gone back the police didn't come till about five o'clock that night so a lot of time had gone by since after the boys had died till the police finally came and talked to us. And when Mike Roberts came, he um, took both John's and I's 
um, hands, did some kind of a test to see if there was gunshot um, residue on our hands. And then he, he questioned us and well, we, we told him what, how it was. And he said, well, why were the boy's feet all roughed up? And I said, well, I couldn't understand why that would be because if they had ran out of the house, the only place that they could have run was, would be in the soft driveway where it was dirt and it wasn't really, you couldn't hurt your feet by running there. And so that I didn't understand. The boy's feet were all roughed up? Yes, like they had been running or somebody chasing them. And so at the time I didn't understand that. So anyway, there was a lot of things that I still don't understand. Now, I've always thought that John's behavior during and after this terrible tragedy was suspicious and odd, to the point I'd almost go as far as to say that he very well might have had some involvement in the death of his boys, given that he had a motive. John held a funeral at the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah Witnesses. It was a terrible funeral with hardly anything said about the boys. John was an adamant member of Jehovah's Witnesses. When Roberta and John first were married, she was a member as well, but she disfellowshipped in 1986, as her sister did six years earlier. Like her, she couldn't live by the teaching that Satan is ruler of this world and that everyone on this planet except Jehovah's Witnesses is under his control. When her sister disfellowshipped, John no longer allowed her to associate with her. When she disfellowshipped, he was beside himself. According to Jehovah's Witness teachings, anyone who is disfellowshipped should be stoned or killed, but since the law of the land won't allow that, they are treated like they are dead. After Roberta disfellowshipped, John continued to make Robert and Ben go to the Kingdom Hall, although they found it frightening. When they got old enough to rebel, he bribed them with a motorcycle. After that, they went about two times a week and only went for one year. Robert and Ben were very unhappy about having to go to the Kingdom Hall. So their father had to figure out a way to bribe them to go. So he bought them a brand new motorcycle. And the deal was that if they'd go to the Kingdom Hall two meetings a week for three years, then he'd buy them the motorcycle. Well, the boys were just really ecstatic about that. And I told them, don't do it. It's just not worth it. But they wouldn't listen to me. They went ahead and said, yeah, we'll go. And so he bought the motorcycle and they were happy for quite a long time, ripping around and playing. In the Watchtower magazine, it was 1993, they had an article about Pompeii. And um, in the, on the cover, there's a picture of a clock and it's about 14 minutes before 12. And 12 o'clock is midnight or doomsday. And that's when the world is supposed to end. And so if you delay getting into Jehovah's organization and Armageddon comes, then you'll be like these people in Pompeii. And in this article, he had a map. And it looks, looked an awful lot like the, of the exact location where the two boys died. And in the map, it goes from Route 13, and then it goes up to Spring Road, and then where the trail goes in, and then there's a, a little part that says end, and it shows a picture of something. I'm not sure what that picture is. 
And then, if you look really closely, you'll see where it says me. And in the me, there, there's the kind of a picture of a car. And right behind the car is a dead body. And then the body is asleep, like the watchtower people were taught, when you die, you sleep. This guy, James something or other from the Milwaukee Sentinel, I got his name somewhere, told me to look in the kids' watchtower literature. So there must have, this must have happened before. So I looked and I found all these things. And they included um, magazines and this revelation book that said all these awful things and how the only way you could be saved was to be in that Jehovah Witness organization. And if you weren't, then you'd be um, destroyed forever. And, and sure enough, and I looked at them and and, I, and we looked through the Bible, too, that they had. And, well, Ronald found something very interesting in there, where it said, why live by Bible standards? And Ben had his name put up there. And then another map of what looked like the trail that said end on it. Tower is a real messenger of death. Death is hidden in a lot of their subliminals. and. That is the main thing they talk about. And if a person dies before this great battle of Armageddon, he's guaranteed to live in paradise. Only Jehovah's Witness. That's the only way you can get in there, is you have to be a Jehovah's Witness because everybody else is of Satan the devil. But they might have thought from the Jehovah's Witness preaching that if they, if they, uh, did uh, kill themselves or something, they're, they're going to end up in the New World anyway because they preached real heavy on that, that everybody that's dead and gone already is going to for sure go to the New World. As a child, you probably just think, well, I don't like living this life. It's too much of a pain right now. And, thought, uh, let's just get out of here and we'll end up in the new world with all the flowers and fruit all over the place and animals to pet and we don't have to deal with this anymore. Well, there was terrible pictures in there, blood up to the horse's necks and then a great big description about how the earth would be cleaned up of all these ungodly people. I don't know, something must have got them the wrong way. It's just hard to, hard to really believe two young boys could just go out and do something like that. Unless there was something really heavily pushing them. Inside John's um, Kingdom Hall bag, I found a couple of pictures that the boys had made in the Kingdom Hall while they were listening to that awful stuff. and. The pictures really showed that that was a really mixed up mind, that it, it really showed torment and fear. And I imagine that's exactly how they felt in hearing about how all these people, including their mother, is gonna get killed in this great battle of Armageddon. Um, there was a lot of, lot of preaching of the end of the world and 
always just a certain amount of people is going to go and everybody else is going to burn in hell. And I know that was had to have been hard for kids because they don't really know what's going on, but by their beliefs of their parents' beliefs. And so they got to go right along with that too. Benjamin had made a picture of a robot, and each boy made pictures of himself, how he saw himself at that time. And they were very abstract, especially Robert's. And then oh, Benjamin had a picture of himself smiling, and he is a very talented artist. He is really good in the detail. And he had a picture of him smiling and what he likes and what he doesn't like and what he's going to be when he grows up and what he did in the summer. And then he made another picture, which I still have in my bedroom, of himself smiling. And he's even got his glasses on. And this told me that, it, that school wasn't the reason at all. It's a blind obedience type religion. All right? And imagine a household like this. Imagine you're those two kids. Okay, you've got a mom who no longer belongs to the church, and she deplores and don't want him to go. You've got a dad, the patriarch of the family, who absolutely wants him to go. <clears throat> the kids themselves absolutely don't want to go, but they do go, and they're able to be bribed by getting a motorcycle. You know, I'll give you a motorcycle if you go for another year, or whatever it is. Well, they want this motorcycle real bad, and well, I guess it's worth it. Well, after a few months, they realize it isn't even worth it for that. And you have a, a, a great deal of anger on the father's part, you know, his whole life and religion is, is, is at odds at one end, and you got the mother's freedom and this little bit of critical thinking coming in there at the other end. So you've got parents at odds with each other. Uh, you've got a religion that you go and study that talks about the end of the world, and that the uh, and that death is a place to be saved. If you die before you, you know, leave the church or, or while you're with the church, of course, you'll be saved. And that type of mentality is driving these boys. Did they commit suicide on their own, realistically? Or were they driven to it by the philosophies and religion that they were taught at church? Or was that religion taken, you know, even a step further and it was aided by the Father? Or a combination? Hmm. So, from a legal question, you know, I'd look at it and say, hmm, who's really the fault here? You know, is this a liability issue against the uh, church? Yeah, well, I kind of suspected the Watchtower, too. But I was kind of afraid to say anything about involving a big, powerful organization that had so much money. What chance would I have against someone like that? But in reality, the reason for the deaths, you know, unless they can prove when they were chemical, you know, due to some, you know, biological reason, which there's no reason to believe that, was either caused by the church or by their teaching or by the father as a result of the church's teachings or something. And I met her daughter and all I can say is thank God they haven't affected her daughter even though I do know for a fact that they're making her ex-husband take her daughter against her will to these things that she doesn't want to go to. I've met her several times and she's a beautiful little girl and I hope she stays that way. And I know it's because of her mom, not her dad. Oh, I'm really concerned about Lisa especially after I found what she had written in her diary. She had written in her diary things about how she was going to 
wishes she could be able to kill everybody she didn't like and how she would like to kill John and how the birds would be eating his flesh that were dead and all kinds of terrible stuff. And she never wrote anything like that before. And last but not least, she wrote how she was going to kill me. And she even had a picture of how she was going to kill me. She said, this is mom in a dress. And I shot her. See the hole in a big picture. And that just made me feel horrible. Here I had already lost two sons. And now they want to get my daughter either to kill me or they want to kill her. And what kind of a deal is this? as I found all these things in her diary that showed she was a very angry little girl and who was taught the complete wrong principles, principles of hate against anybody else that isn't a Jehovah Witness, even her mother. Why should I have to be um, tolerate, put up with that for her to have to keep going with him every meeting when I can see how it's destroying her? Oh, I know where she's getting them. They're all right there, right in the watchtower. You're supposed to hate anybody that isn't a Jehovah Witness, even if they're related to you. And you're not supposed to speak to them. And the judge gave me sole custody of her with the right to choose religion. But then he said it was okay for him to take, to um, go to the meetings with when he had her on his time. And so now he takes her preaching and two meetings. And so she's got to hear a whole bunch of that awful fear stuff. And the Bible says there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. He who is fears is not perfect in love. And that's how Lisa and I do believe. But I don't know how much longer this is going to go on. Am I going to have to move away to protect her from this terrible religion? You can tell that they were, had a lot of anxiety about the religious aspect. And it was a very scary part of it. And it was, they were continuing to go over it. They would just go over it and over it and over it. You know, repetition tends to breed the uh, situation. Indoctrination of fear. And that's right. They say uh, if you go over it enough times for uh, emphasis. Yeah. Repetition for emphasis. That's what... The, the word and, and that's typically the method they use for that. And they're at the age where the minds are kind of open and they can be scared fairly easy. But scared to death? I think that she's slowly getting into, indoctrinated into that belief that um, everybody else is bad and, and that goes as far even as her mother, whom I know she loves me very much. Who knows what can happen in the future? Like it might be even predicting. Is that how they want to get rid of me? Brainwashing her into killing me? At their son's cremation, Roberta got a memorial stone and buried the boy's ashes in the Ogama Cemetery. John refused to go to the cemetery for a service when the stone was placed there. Which again is very odd behaviour for a father who has just lost his two sons. Although one could put it down to being grief-stricken. However, I don't think so.
The other odd thing about this was that the ashes in the little white boxes were grey and looked like wood ashes to Roberta. At first, Mike Roberts, the investigating officer for the Price County Sheriff's Department, seemed convinced that the deaths were a double murder. The first responder, an officer named Neil Edward Holmes, told Roberta's private investigator that when he first arrived at the scene, his impression was that it was staged like it was an ambulance drill. Then, for no apparent reason, investigator Roberts decided to close the case as a double homicide. He speculated that Robert might have shot Ben and then shot himself. The motive he suggested was that the boys didn't like school because their father's religion prohibited them from going on field trips, pledging allegiance to the flag, or being in school programs. Another odd and interesting thing to come out of this was that Roberta stated that John said that he would take the blame for the deaths of the boys himself before he would let Jehovah's Witnesses be in any way implicated, which to me says a lot about John where his allegiances lie. Roberta went along with Investigator Roberts' theory because she was in so much pain and the media kept hounding her and John was so insistent. But once the numbness wore off, she came to her senses and realised that the evidence didn't point to suicide. She separated from John Moore and hired a private investigator. Like their father had made me to believe and like I had told the media. But the media kept on bothering and, and calling and, and I didn't know what to say because I didn't know at that time what was really behind it. Among the odd circumstances surrounding this case was that the rifle found at the scene was John's old single-shot long-barrel Remington that fired 22 short shells. What the deputies found at the scene were two 22 long shells. Now, how could someone possibly have fired rounds from a gun that couldn't physically fire them? Ben's autopsy also revealed that he had metal fragments in his head that could not have been caused by a 22 Remington rifle. There were no such fragments in Robert's head, which suggests that the boys were shot with different guns. Oddly, when John came out of the woods, he told Roberta that the rifle was lying 10 to 15 feet from the boys' bodies, yet the deputies found it lying between Ben's legs. That made Roberta think that the killer may still have been lurking at the scene when John was in there and changed the location of the gun between the time John left and investigators arrived. And the leaves are, of course, wet, which means that they'd be on the ground. If there are leaves on the gun, then obviously they were put there by somebody. And the only reason I can imagine they'd have leaves on the gun is if someone was trying to wipe the fingerprints off the gun. Which is amazing because there didn't appear to be any usable prints on the gun. Yet you have two boys that are laying there dead that, you know, killed themselves. Why wouldn't there be usable prints on the gun? Unless they were wiped off by someone that didn't want his or her prints on the gun. But my lawyer checked into it, and he found that there was smudge marks on the gun. And on the police report that I was given a copy of, it says that there was leaves on top of the gun. And as Robert and Benjamin were dead, my lawyer discovered that how could they possibly put the leaves on top of the gun? And so obviously somebody else had to be there. Whether they were capable or knew how to load and unload it necessarily or not, I don't know. Uh, there's an awful lot of family members that have pieces of information that should have been interviewed to follow up on it. You know, I don't know what it takes to get a follow up on, I don't know. And the instinctive thing that comes to mind is, is who killed them? So I grew up in a very uh, if you will, tough neighborhood. And uh, uh, as tough as things were, the concept of suicide or whatever between my brothers never entered our mind. 
running away, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, suicide, no. So the minute I heard that instinctively gut feeling all the way around is they were murdered for one reason or other. No, when I was that young, I never thought of anything that drastic. What strikes me as really odd about this is John was the one who found the boys' bodies and was out of sight of Roberta for a period of time. She then hears a gunshot and John comes back telling her not to go back to where the boys' bodies were as they had killed themselves. In the timeline, John disappears for a period of time and we can't account for where he was or what he was doing. Now, one other sinister aspect to this case that no one has ever gotten to the bottom of is that there is also information in Robert's autopsy report, according to Roberta, that suggests that he may have been sodomized, not that same day, but on other occasions. To my knowledge, this has never been investigated. There, there was a, a court hearing, uh, oh, about, I guess, seven, eight years old before the kid's death, um, where he uh, had been charged for abusing the children, mm. and uh, <clears throat> those would be very interesting to look at because we have a history of someone that has been abusing his, you know, spouse all the way along. Well, when Ma told me he used to be pretty rough with him, especially Robert. Sometimes he'd, uh, you know, he'd do the neck squeeze thing and just give you a real good neck squeeze or kick you in the butt and throw you down on the floor and sit on you until you couldn't hardly breathe and put his point across. One of the things that was real interesting is Roberta was describing to me why she would go out in the wintertime in the cold weather regardless of whatever and help them out in the woods. I mean, you got these babies here, why aren't you, you know, kind of taking care of them at home? And basically her answer to me had indicated that uh, he would take the oldest kids out in the woods with him, period. And if she wanted to make sure nothing happened to him, she'd better be out there working. So she bundles up this kid that's two or three years old, takes him out in the woods, and when they get cold, starts up the car, and lets the you know, car run, try to keep warm while she's busy out there working. If she doesn't work fast enough, well, something might happen to the kids. So he had kind of a, a hold, you know, over her and the kids, and of course the older kids realized that if they didn't do their share, something could happen to mom. So we had everybody working to help each other. And this is a pretty lousy way to run a business. You know, you can talk about family business all you want, but there's a real good clue here that we got a problem. Mm -hmm. And why this was never, you know, investigated or brought out or checked out, I don't know. He, oh, he ended up whipping me with one of these, uh plastic train track rail things and got welts all over my arm so I took off again. <laughs> they saw, the church saw her as polluting the kids' you know, mm. ability to remain Jehovah Witnesses by training them to think on their own, to be independent. And when you start critically thinking and becoming independent, the last thing you're going to do is hurt yourself. So the next in line was Robert that got a lot of abuse from him. Look at the mindset of the people that are being converted. Almost all, always they've had a loss, whether it be a family member or financial, whatever. You can call them down on their luck. Okay, imagine a situation, you're down on your luck. Things are not going well, you're kind of depressed. Now someone says, that's no problem. If you join us, you're going to get everything in the end. You're going to be the winner. Well, here's a chance to recoup all your losses. You know, and it's a real mental, emotional boost. 
If you join us and become us, when all the rest are died violently, you're going to inherit everything they got. And you're one of the chosen ones. Now you've gone from being at the bottom of the barrel to being one of the chosen few that are going to get everything. And all you've got to do is join and belong and come and, and help support the church. Well, gee, that's a small price to pay to, to be a winner. Yeah. God, what a sales deal. God, I got to sell a lot of stuff. <laughs> but, the, but the bottom line is ultimately you give up everything about yourself. You give up your independent thinking. You give up your uh, critical, uh, uh, you know, your ability to crit critique things or, or, or whatever, and you blindly have to follow whatever the church says. And if they are all going to run off the end of a cliff, you'd better do it too because that's that'll save you. And that, that's terrible. But it sure is effective. Oh, yeah. What a wonderful marketing. You know? If I could sell some of my products like that, they'd lock me up so quick. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. And but yet, you can do it in religion. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. Oh, Other odd inconsistencies about the suicide theory continued to crop up. Roberta's private detective discovered that the shell that was in the gun had marks on it that were caused by someone attempting to remove the spent shell with a pair of pliers. There were no pliers at the scene, only a butter knife. Sheriff Wayne Worsling told her he sent the knife to the crime lab to be dusted for prints. However, when she looked into the car at the impound yard, the butter knife was still in it. It hadn't been sent to the crime lab at all. And, and for a long time, they never told me that there was a kitchen knife involved. And I just wondered and wondered, and I almost went crazy wondering what did they pry out those bullets with. And then finally, the last time they questioned John Moore and myself, then Mike Roberts told me that there was a kitchen knife involved. I guess the thing that amazes me, it would be one thing if, the, if it was, in, uh, say, a, a semi-automatic or something where one could shoot the other one and then shoot himself right away without a lot of thinking in a moment of if you will passion yeah but imagine a, a gun that doesn't work yeah. loading it you know which yeah. is always a trick because otherwise you drop the shell right. and then shooting himself or having his brother shoot him yeah. and then going through all that trouble to unload it by then the passion would long have since gone and the shock of what, seeing his seeing brother, his brother laying there bleeding while he's trying to unload the gun and load it you know again yeah i mean in my mind i just can't conceive of that being suicide. Yeah. It doesn't fit. Then I saw the knife that was supposedly sent to the crime lab. Wayne Worsing had told me that the knife had gone to the crime lab so that they could see which boy was first. And there I found it in the car. And anyway, this Pat Knack has pictures of this. And the police officer that let us in, I'm sure he has pictures of this too that document this and um, so I confronted Wayne Worsing and, and the knife had a little crink on the end that it was used for that and he admitted that yes that was the knife that was used and Mike Roberts had said the knife was about a foot away from the gun and so well he he lied, he had lied to me and told him, me that they went to, it went to the crime lab. And in the autopsy report, it didn't show that either. And I wondered why they didn't have the knife in there. And he said, well, because the knife had these, um, the design of the knife had, was so much so that the print couldn't be seen. So 
the knife had very bad memories for me, and so I just left it there in the police station in the wastebasket. And if the police were doing the correct thing, they should have taken that and put it in with the evidence. I'm, I'm embarrassed for that police department. Uh, first of all, you, you know, it's a small town, and of course there's no real excuse in a small town, but uh, you have people that know each other, and I think they were kind of in shock. Uh, they're not trained for this type of a situation. You know, they're called out there uh, to a situation where there's two dead bodies. Uh, the parents are asked some basic questions, and then they're left alone. At the end of the day, you know, 10, 12 hours, they finally show up and say, well, maybe we ought to check and get some final statements from the parents. And then they decide, well, maybe we better check for gunpowder. Well, by that time, you know, they've changed shirts. Uh, John had plenty of time, uh, the father, to uh, clean up, wash any residue off, the whole works. Mm -hmm. There's so many details that were overlooked, not done at all, not checked out, not followed up. Interviews of families that didn't follow up. I mean, for Christ's sake, there's two dead kids here. Mm -hmm. You know, we really need to ask some serious questions. You know, if not now or when, ever. The private detective attempted to remove a spent shell from the Remington using pliers. It took him six minutes to do that. A police lady working along with him couldn't even get the shell out of the gun and gave up. When Roberta saw how hard it was to remove a spent shell from that gun, she knew there was no way that 13-year-old Robert could shoot Ben, then pry out the spent shell with a butter knife, reload the gun, and shoot himself on the left side of his head, especially when he was right-handed. Stranger still, according to police, there were no prints on the gun or on the steering wheel of the car. Why would her boys wipe down the steering wheel clean before shooting themselves, and how could they wipe the gun clean after shooting themselves? This defies reason. And then when we finally did get the police report, it said that there were no prints on the gun. And the police had confiscated the steering wheel and um, two empty shot rifle calibers or whatever you call them and the boys had used 22 long rifle shells and the, the gun was a real old-time gun and it used 22 short rifle shells so a person would have to pry one bullet out before they could put another one in well you know even the complexity of the situation of how to make that gun work is amazing you got a, a, a 22 rifle that doesn't work properly. It's a single shot. Uh, each time it's shot, you got you know it's a knife or something sharp object. You got to pry the old shell out, and then manually put the new shell in, and then use it. So there's a lot of time in between one person killing you know one and one killing themselves. It must have been awful hard to sit there and watch your own brother kill himself. Or and uh, just be able to do the same thing to yourself. Because one of them had to be sitting there watching if, if there wasn't anything else that went on. That's the way they say it happened, so. The PI was also convinced that one or more individuals murdered both boys. Now we're going to read an extract from a report by the private investigator. 
case memo, client, Roberta Moore, date 11.10.03. Quote, with my 24 years of investigative experience, do I believe this was a suicide? No, I do not believe this was a suicide. Can we prove this was not a suicide? No, we cannot at this time, or at least that is my opinion. I too feel that the scene looked like a staged scene. I feel that it is highly unlikely that a young man could have shot his brother and then taken the time to dig the shell casing out of the rifle and then shoot himself. I don't see how a young boy could shoot himself in the temple and then fall back perfectly backward with the rifle falling in between his legs. I have also not seen anything in the report to explain this to me. End quote. Another spooky aspect to this case was that her sons were not the only people to die on that road during that time period. The bodies of one other child who came from the same school as her boys and an older man were found on that same road in a pattern of a two-year interval prior to her sons. All those cases were closed as suicides, which doesn't sit right with me. I mean, two more deaths occurred in the same area around that same time and both cases were ruled suicide? In September of 2002, nine years after Roberta's son's deaths, her local newspaper, The Bee, did a follow-up article on the case. The Bee made an open records request to view the contents of the case file. Sheriff Richard, and I'm going to butcher this name, Height Kemper, denied that request, saying the case had been reopened and was actively being investigated. He said investigator Mike Roberts had been reviewing the case files for approximately a year, and some physical evidence was currently at the state crime lab in Madison. Roberta Moore got very excited. Maybe the Sheriff's Department had finally sent the butter knife to the crime lab. Sheriff Hyde Kemper told the Bee that he would let them know the results of the investigation once it was completed. That never happened. Mike Roberts apparently later informed Roberta that her case was never reopened. She could only assume that the Sheriff gave that story to reporters to block their open records request. Now, there's an additional bizarre chapter to this true-life horror story that no one's ever gotten to the bottom of, although various people have tried. The parents tried, various other people have tried, but they've just been stonewalled. The autopsies of her sons were performed at Ramsey Medical Center in St. Paul, Minnesota. This used to be county-run, but is now known as Regent's Hospital. Dr. Michael McGee performed the autopsy on Ben, and Dr. Susan Rowe performed the autopsy on Robert. Her son's bodies were then allegedly sent to Heindel's funeral home in Phillips, Wisconsin, and cremated at Rhinelander Crematorium. It was then that Bill Heindel of Heindel's funeral home informed Roberta that it is illegal to cremate a child without the signature of both parents. Roberta, on finding out about this, then became suspicious that someone had faked her signature. A friend went with her to the crematorium to inspect their records, and very, very shockingly enough, they discovered that the crematorium had no record of how having cremated Ben and Robert. The scary part about that is Roberta has no idea what they actually buried at the cemetery or what happened to her son's bodies. Roberta then went on to talk about a similar story of Greg Messiner, who died in Hawley, Minnesota in 1998. Like her boys, Greg's autopsy was done at Ramsey Medical Center. The same pathologist, Dr. Michael McGee, who did the autopsy on her boy Ben, did the autopsy on Greg. In 2002, Greg's parents had his body exhumed and a second autopsy performed by private autopsy in San Bernardino, CA. Forensic pathologist Monica Hollinger, who supervised Greg's autopsy, informed the Messiners that Greg's organs and brain were missing and the cavities had been filled with kitty litter. It would be interesting to know how many other bodies and organs have gone missing after autopsies at the Ramsey Medical Center, and how many graves in Minnesota and Wisconsin contain something other than the remains of the person whose name is on the grave marker. What happened to the boys' bodies and what Roberta actually buried in the cemetery remains to this day unknown. To this day, Roberta's son's death remains controversial and unresolved, and their case is still marked as a suicide. 
one was supposed to have shot the other one, then shot himself, then throw the gun out the car. Now, I don't know that much about guns, but usually when there's a gun going off, you're in shock. If you shoot your brother or somebody else, you're in shock. Then you don't shoot yourself, and then you don't have time to throw the gun outside the car. After you're dead. After you're dead. And then on top of that, when somebody is looking for you and supposed to know absolutely nothing about you, how is it that they know exactly the exact same spot to go look but tell the family to stay here because they don't want you to see it? Now, if you don't know anything, why wouldn't the family be coming with you to look for your lost ones? Why would you take, tell the rest of the family, stay here, I'll go look? Because I've been after the sheriff and I've been after Mike Roberts and there are so many unanswered questions and I feel that they know much more than they're telling me. And I don't understand why they don't let the people know. The people in this county all love those boys too and everybody wonders what happened. And it's really wrong of them to hide the truth. Many questions remain unanswered. Did the boys actually commit suicide? Is it possible that foul play was involved and they were murdered? If they did kill themselves, what would cause two young minds to think that they were better off dead? Is it possible that abuse made life too miserable to want to live? Did fear of Armageddon, fear of not being worthy, or fear of their mother being destroyed by God contribute to them taking their own lives? Is it possible that some beliefs could damage young minds with fear to the point of committing the unthinkable? If they did kill themselves, who is responsible? Did images and teachings in their religious literature influence them to think and act as they did? Was the police investigation properly conducted and concluded? We contacted the boy's father, John Moore, for an interview, which he declined by referring us to the police. We contacted the police and they never returned our calls. We contacted Roberta's lawyer, who was unavailable for comment. Sheriff Wayne Worsing no longer lives in the area. When he finished his term as sheriff, he apparently left town never to be seen again. We contacted the local congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses, who declined to comment. One elder did say, that some people did not believe it was suicide. Roberta is still seeking answers to these puzzles and contradictions. One day, she hopes that the death of her sons, Robert and Benjamin, will be explained, and if anyone is responsible, brought to justice. If her sons did commit suicide, were they driven to this unthinkable act by fear of Armageddon? The most important questions were never answered. Can beliefs and doctrine cause some individuals to become so depressed that death by suicide seems like the way out of displeasing God and their church? What about the children who learned these things? The evidence speaks for itself. And I think that I deserve to know the truth. Was it suicide or was it murder? Most of the people don't believe that it was a suicide. And I think that I deserve to know the truth. Was it suicide or was it murder?
With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time, next on Unanswered Questions. Greg Meisner, 18, was hanged in his bedroom in the Meisner family home in Hawley, Minnesota in the early hours of January 5th of 1998. Between $40 to $70 was missing from his wallet. 